today we're um, going to be looking at the third part of, uh, of, of a four-part series that we're doing on the storyline story of um, the people going into the promised land as uh, they've just uh, ended 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And like any good story, there are characters uh, that go to make up uh, both the uh, protagonists and the antagonists, um, the villains, um, the... Uh, the, the trials and the tests and the things that make it look like the story's not going to end well. And that truly was the case for what we see in the life of Caleb and Joshua. And as um, we're sort of thinking about that story in relation to our own lives and the story that God is writing uh, through us, um, I think a lot of times there are, there are connections that we can make between the experience of other people and the experiences that we go through in our own life. And um, I don't think this story is any exception. And I, I like the fact that as um, we're looking into the life of Caleb, um, he's like so many people that stand out. If I mention <coughs> names like <coughs> excuse me, Adam and um, names like Noah and Abraham and David and Solomon, uh, just to name a few, uh, you know that these are people that have stood out somewhere in the biblical storyline. And as God's bringing things uh, to fulfillment in the person of his son Jesus, along the way he likes to basically showcase an individual and say, let's take a look at this person's life. And oftentimes uh, those people are singled out because they have God's favor upon them. And uh, Caleb was one of those individuals that felt God's favor in his life. And, and, and the interesting thing about how God um, looks at each of us is that um, he, he sees us all as individuals that are truly loved to the, to the greatest, greatest depth of his being. And, um, and it's the same probably if you've had children in the course of your life or you have them at home now. Um, you just, there's no greater love that you could have for anyone in the world than, than your offspring. Um, and, 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 and yet there are times when you're not questioning that love, but rather you're, you're wondering just how um, uh, united you guys are on, on, on the purpose of things within the house. And teenage years, I think, are the biggest time when you just wonder if, uh, if everybody's going in the same direction. Nonetheless, you still love your children, even though um, uh, they're in that moment. Some people actually said when kids are teenagers, they, um, it's like when the space shuttle is coming back into um, the atmosphere. There's about three minutes where you lose contact. Because they're going through that, 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 that part of the atmosphere that, that is so intensely hot that the only thing that's being experienced in that moment are the heat shields deflecting that away from the capsule and protecting it. And people wonder sometimes in that two or three minute window whether or not it's going to make it to the other side. And uh, people who work with teenagers have likened their experience with them uh, to that, that the parents say, I'm not sure where they're at, but I hope that whenever they get to the other side, uh, they land intact. And I've seen that um, with, uh, with two of my teenagers, and I'm going through it somewhat with my third one. 
doesn't mean that I don't love uh, these guys, but there are times when you're like, I'm not sure if we're working in the same direction. Um, now, what, what, what we can trust is the fact that um, the sustaining presence and all of that is love. But whenever um, we ourselves as children of God are uh, in any situation, we can be confident that God loves us. But there's a place that we can arrive at where we, we, we are confident even more so that God's favor can be upon us. And I want to explore that in the course of this part of the message uh, series that we're going through. And that is the difference between being loved and being favored. And it's not about favoritism, but it's about really uh, cooperation and alignment. So here Caleb is, and uh, we find um, this, um, this particular uh, uh, sentence described in Numbers uh, 14.24 as he is called to fulfill the vision or the dream that he's been given. And it's a, it's a dream that is in, in alignment with God's purposes and everything about Caleb seems to be in sync with the intentions of God. And when God um, made this statement regarding how he viewed Caleb in that moment, he said this, But my servant Caleb is different from the others. He has remained loyal to me, and I will bring him into the land he explored. His descendants will receive their full share of the land. Now, why, why is he saying that? He's saying that actually because in contrast to what we just saw, there are a bunch of people that God truly loved. He loved them so much, he called them up out of Egypt, and he said, I've got great things in store for you. But it seemed like, despite the fact that he loved them so much, they could really care less about what God was interested in. They only wanted to do what they wanted to do. Have you ever tried to work with somebody that only wanted to do what they wanted to do? Maybe it's in, at work, maybe it's in your family, but it seems like it's just one will is going that way and one will is going that way and the, the end result is frustration. And what God was seeing in the lives of most of the people that he truly loved was that they weren't too interested in paying attention to the things that mattered to him most the plan that he had to redeem them, and the desire that he had to make them into a, a, a people that would embody his character. It was a big program that involved a lot of cooperation. And yet, when we look at Caleb, and we look at Joshua, and even Moses, these are people that God clearly favored because they had God's best interest in mind. Now, how do you and I fit into that? How do we find God's favor in our own lives? And I'd like to explore that a little bit because I think that we can, in a sense, garner God's favor in our life experiences by doing certain things in a habitual way that bring Him close. And it's like if you ever go to a family reunion, you know that biologically... All of these people that kind of look like you in some way, maybe they share some character traits or characteristics or physical features. Uh, but in other ways, you know, they, they've lived their own lives. And sometimes when you go to a family reunion, it seems like 
everybody or there's some people that just really see things the same way. And I remember going to a family reunion uh, in California whenever I was a teenager. And my, my father and um, his, his um, nephew, who he's really close to, got back together after a long period of time. And it was just so cool to see them kind of sink back up again. Uh, but the, the sad thing was, by the end of the evening, they got into a debate about something. And they left kind of not happy with each other. And it wasn't that they didn't love each other. It was just that they weren't going in the same direction and it led to a parting of the ways. What God is looking for in your life and mine is that not only do we honor the kinship that we have with each other, but we'll become heart and mind and purpose-wise in sync with his purpose. God actually dreams these things for each of us. The first one, of course, is that we'll become a part of his family. That is his biggest dream. But the second thing is, as we become part of his family, we'll want to share in his redemptive purpose. So we read the Bible and we see that God wants to show lost people his love through our lives. And as we consider that and make that, and we take ownership of that as part of his family, and we work together like a family business would work together and try to accomplish those things. The third thing that we see happening is that we'll begin to see the dream he has for us. And when we, when we talk about dreams in our culture, usually it means something big and audacious. Um, like, I, I'm going to build my dream home or I'm going to... I'm gonna, you know, um, pure cancer or something that um, is just uh, a statement to everybody that uh, it's going to be uh, a, an epic um, uh, experience to walk into and to realize. But God has something a little bit different. Uh, every time he dreams, it has to do with how we can come closer to him and experience the fullness of life in him and to know his joy. Now, now, that doesn't mean that we don't have dreams for things that go along with, with, with that plan that involve, um, like our capital improvement campaign. It's just part of a dream on the part of the leadership, seeing aspects of the building becoming um, uh, transformed in a way that hopefully will fulfill that redemptive purpose. And so they're tied to physical realities, but in a deeper sense, God's looking at dreams that relate to things relational. So let's start off with uh, how this worked out in Caleb's life. For Caleb, God poured his favor upon him, and he did it because Caleb's attitude consisted of three critical ingredients that pulled God closer. And you'll see what I mean here in just a second. The first ingredient that is mentioned is one that you hear about uh, repeatedly in Scripture. And it, um, it's seen uh, in, in the famous passage in James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but brings his favor upon those who are humble. And humility for a believer is like, um, you know, like, like water to the person that is parched. It is like nutrition to the person that is starving. It is the lifeblood of how we carry on in our relationship with God. 
it's probably the biggest thing that we have to overcome is our lack of ability to be humble. And, and, and what might that mean? Humility means putting other people first. It means a lot of times not being able to exercise our rights when we've been wronged or offended. Humility means serving other people at our own expense. But at its core, humility means coming before God with arms out and palms up in a spirit of surrender, saying that you're God and and I'm not. And I want my will to align with your will, God. And that's not very easy. And all of us are in varying degrees working with humility on that level, making his will our will. We just prayed it, didn't we? Do you remember praying that today? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Well, if we really want his will to be done, it means oftentimes it's going to have to override what I want my will to do. And humility is the only way that that can occur. If you were to kind of describe what humility is from the standpoint of God and how it allows him to show favor into our lives, I'd just like to look at this, this thought for a minute. Go ahead and go back for a second, uh, if you would. Humility... Um, Yeah, thanks. Humility means trusting God as having authority over any threatening situation. Let me just explain. If you, um, you know, if you're uh, um, looking at your life in terms of things that might threaten you, it could be your job, it could be your own sense of personal security, it could be your health, it could be anything that you get very worked up about and, and, you, and you worry about a lot. It could be the future and all the uncertainty. It could be the presidential election of 2016. Whenever you look at all of these things and you do the math, you're like, I don't know. I'm, I'm worried. I'm wringing my hands. I don't know how this is going to work out. But humility says this. Notwithstanding the fact that there is reason for concern in all the areas that I mentioned, the most important thing that you and I can do in the course of things is to recognize that God does have authority over it all, even even presidents and countries and their destinies. And if things are happening in those environments, it's likely because God is allowing them to happen. And if he's allowing them to happen, he has a reason that maybe we don't fully understand just yet, but in hindsight, I'm confident we will. And what he wants us to realize is despite what happens, he's trustworthy. And humility says, I'm scared, or I'm nervous, or I'm anxious, but I'm going to give all of that to you, and I'm going to trust you. And I don't know if we oftentimes think about it that way, but I've been driven to my knees in a spirit of surrender whenever I've carried burdens and things that I worried about that I would lose sleep regarding at night. And whenever I finally came to the place, uh, in, on, a, on a occasions that I remember, it was when I just stopped and I said, I don't have the ability to change these circumstances. And so I just surrender all of it to you in a spirit of humility. And I trust you, God, to manage them in a way that's according to your will. 
and I'll trust you to take care of me in the process. That's, that's another way of seeing how humility works. And his favor helps us overcome seemingly insurmountable obstacles. And if you were to zoom back to the life of Caleb, he had every reason to be afraid. Giants in the land, the numerous adversaries that they were going to have to face, the questionability of farmers turned into warriors, and he could lose a lot of sleep at night, but he said, nope. God, you're in charge. This is your dream. This is your vision. And I'm walking into it as you've made me part of it. And his favor helps us to overcome seemingly insurmountable obstacles. You know, I mentioned the space shuttle coming back into the atmosphere. And you know, it is the tiles that are on um, the, the underside of the shuttle that withstand the heat and keep a tremendous amount of heat from just melting into a cinder almost instantaneously, a, an, an aluminum um, spacecraft. And you imagine the vulnerability of that craft in light of that tremendous amount of heat, and you realize that the only thing that is keeping them from that are these thin tiles that are impervious to that heat. And I believe a lot of times when we are facing the heat of life, it is God just surrounding us and keeping us. Do you know of any biblical characters, by the way, as I'm thinking about this, who had to withstand a lot of physical heat? And yet when they did, there's three of them. And when somebody did the count, actually there were four and I think you, 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 you recall Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the story of, um, of, uh, of, of what Daniel experienced uh, alongside them. And as uh, God protected them, he watches over us because those people that were described in that particular story were humble before their God and they trusted him no matter what. And God may be working out a dream in your life that you may not even realize is even a dream or a vision that he has. But as he's doing it and revealing it to you, humility is an important part. And uh, let's just go to the scripture real quickly that, um, uh, that, that the psalmist wrote in 138.6. Though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. And as I transition into the next point, I, I want to set it up by a story that I think is sort of on the forefront of a lot of our minds, and that is what's happening with the Olympics. And many of you probably are watching the Olympics and have enjoyed watching the Olympics over the years and seeing how competitors uh, go through, um, you know, the, um, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And probably everyone in the room is familiar with um, uh, the, the one record holder who has won more gold medals than any other Olympian, uh, Michael Phelps. And as uh, we've seen him go through four Olympiads, uh, we know that um, he's just got an incredible uh, story of um, success relative to that. So overwhelmingly successful that when he retired in 2012, it was like everything that represented his identity 
was now, was now eliminated from his life. And he describes being pretty lost. And after 2012 and retiring, um, he just kind of got caught up in the lifestyle of what the, uh, the fruit was of that experience. He could enjoy being content and resting. Describes putting on 30 pounds, drinking a lot, smoking marijuana, and uh, just basically drifting through life at that point. To a place where um, he realized that his identity was tied to who he was as an Olympian, and he decided he would resume his, um, his, his, his uh, career as a swimmer in that realm, and in 2014 approached his, his coach, who had become his mentor and father figure, about that prospect. And what was lurking in the background of his own life story was probably something that, that, that we can, some of us in the room can relate to. Maybe we can't, maybe we can't. But it was a father who, at the age of nine, left he and his mother and just disconnected from him as a child emotionally at that critical time. And the, and the anger and the rage and the bitterness that he had regarding that was part of what fueled his intensity as a competitor. And in thinking about his own father, he just discounted him as even being a person in his life that, would, um, that, that, that he would deem significant. And as he's dealing with all of these background emotional issues, and he's trying to sort that out relative to his identity as a competitor, he's not really able to hold it all together. And shortly after he went into that, um, that training, uh, he, got a, he left a casino one night and got a DUI. As a result of that, um, his coach said, I'm, I'm pretty much done with you. And he just kind of fell into a deep depression afterwards and uh, describes his life as very suicidal. On the edge of basically just ending it all, he got a phone call from another athlete who happened to be a Christian who had gone through his own dark night of the soul. Uh, and that was the NFL player Ray Lewis. And Ray Lewis, if you remember back in 2000, was involved in a, a murder episode in a bar and lost his um, privilege as, a, as an athlete. And through that whole darkness, became a very solid believer. And he describes being prompted to just call Michael Phelps and, 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 and check in on him. And when he did, it was like God had used him in that critical moment to speak words into his life that he needed to hear. And what he did is he came alongside him, gave him a copy of Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. And uh, he said, you need to read this. And then he told him, you need to get into a, a rehab facility and he took him to the same one that he himself had gone years prior. And when he got there, he started reading The Purpose Driven Life. And as words began to soak in, it was like a thousand light bulbs went off. And his understanding of all of the broken pieces of his life began to take shape in the form of, 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 of meaning and purpose as he brought God closer into the equation through those readings. And people described him in the rehab as Preacher Michael 
because he was going around preaching to people about what he found in the purpose-driven life. You guys remember Flo Tice, right? Did she ever preach to you about what she found in the purpose-driven life? Wasn't it cool? So you can imagine that picture. And as I elaborate a little bit on this narrative, um, what, what occurred in that environment was, was really interesting. Because his dream was to be a gold medalist. But God's dream was a little bit more subtle. And it was for him, first of all, to be made whole as a human being. But the second dream came alive as he was reading The Purpose Driven Life near the end. It described how God, in, as Paul described it in Galatians or in 2 Corinthians 5.16, that God has reconciled us through his son Jesus Christ. And therefore, you need to go and be reconciled with people that you are alienated from in your life. And in that moment, he realized that the person that he had shut out of his life, he needed to initiate the process of reconciliation. And without God's prompting or strength, it never would have happened. But knowing that healing was part of God's vision and dream and reconciliation that was involved in that healing process with a father that had abandoned him, he gave his father a phone call and he figured his father wouldn't have anything to do with him. And what's so powerful about this, um, this prompting that God gave him was that the father um, immediately responded and then they, they, they reunited and embraced and uh, began the process of, of, of healing together. And it's a very powerful story. Um, and basically it is a dream that is part of the priority of God when he thinks about what's important and what's not. The Olympic medals, he had 18 of them. He will never be able to cross them over into the new creation. But the relationships that we have here, are they, they transcend time and space from here to eternity. And when God looks at each of our lives, it's those dreams that he has for us to find healing in ourselves through his son and to find reconciliation with people that um, are maybe in the, in the process of things not being close, are keeping God from being active in those relationships and then surrendering that to his purpose. And as we move into the next point quickly, we find that what that required was courage, but it is courage that doesn't come from us. It is courage that God and only God can give. And this courage means choosing to be different from the crowd if the reason is worthy. And God aligns with us as a father would his child when we follow his ways. And so I, I just want to elaborate quickly. Now, the last thing in the world I'm sure Michael Phelps was pondering when he was, you know, drinking the beer and, and, and smoking, smoking the hippie lettuce was, I can't imagine God coming into my life and then me preaching to everybody. That's just the most absurd thing I could even ponder. And yet somehow when God begins to work in us, we just don't even care anymore. And 
we live in an environment, you and I do, that does not care for God. Matter of fact, there are a lot of things happening in the larger environment that God says really is just bad behavior. It's unhealthy behavior. It's destructive behavior. It will destroy, it's soul-destroying behavior. But it seems like many of the institutions now are saying we need to give those behaviors a second look. And we need to validate those behaviors. And we need to actually celebrate those behaviors. And if you say it enough, and enough people say it long enough, pretty soon everybody starts to think, must be okay. But if a person chimes up and says, I'm not so sure, they're going to get shut down pretty quick. Because the one thing that we like to do when we're misbehaving is have everyone else validate that our misbehavior is okay. And you and I live in a culture of tremendous misbehavior. And it's not misbehavior because we're morally good and they're bad people. No, it's, it's behavior that alienates us from God. God loves all of us, everyone on this planet, for sure. But when we carry on in a way that's against his purposes, he just can't get too close. Because he's so different in how he looks at things that it's just not a possibility. But when we have the courage to say, God, I want to bring you close. I want to spend time in your word. I want to stay connected to you. I want to keep worshiping you and take you through the course of the remainder of my life in a way that, we, that, 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 that allows us to be strongly connected. And when what I'm doing rubs up against what the crowd is doing, I want to know that no matter how many people are out there, you and I are the, are the, are the important majority. And that's all that matters. God is bigger than anything or anyone or any group. And he comes alongside us. And Paul actually described the struggle that he had in this in 2 Corinthians 6. And in it he talks about how he has to just become, as a leader, that person that he needs to be in whatever environment, taking a stand for God. And what he's found is oftentimes people don't like it very well. And he was heavily abused by that, and he describes that. And after he does, he says, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? How can they be aligned? How can they purposefully be going in the same direction? And then he says, For we are the temple of of the living God. He resides in us. We are a place where he feels like it's a fit. And as God said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they'll be my people. And it's just like we're just all aligned. And therefore, he said, come out of them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I'll receive you. And as Paul's quoting that, he's thinking about children being sacrificed. He's thinking about children and prostitutes at temples that are being sexually used for religious ceremonial purposes. And he's seeing a lot of very bad behaviors that were, that the group think was saying, this is all good, this is all good, where everybody's doing it, it's all good. And God's saying, it's just evil. And I want you to come away from that. And he said, if you do, I'll be a father to you, and you'll be my sons and daughters. And it's like God says, we'll function as a family, everything going in the same direction. And that takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? But how often is it when 
something in our families is at stake that we just roll over and say, I'm not interested in helping out because, well, um, uh, you know, I, I just want to do what everybody else is doing and not, not take risks or not invest or not, not help out. No, it's just not, that's just not what we do. If a person is hurting, we come alongside them and we do whatever it takes. If we're at the hospital, and um, I remember driving my wife to the hospital when we were having our third kid, and they, they said no parking in the front of the, of, the, uh, of the hospital. You had to go around to the emergency. Well, I'm thinking, I don't care if there's no parking in the front of the hospital. I'm parking in the front of the hospital because I know where the maternity place is, and this is the shortest route between two points, and I'm parking there. And, um, you know, if I had just gone along with the crowd, I don't know if I want to park there because... Well, you're not supposed to, and nobody does it. No, you do what you have to do because what the purpose of the moment is regarding the well-being of your family is the most important thing. And that's what God says about us. The purpose of what we're doing is the most important thing, redeeming and reconciling people with him. It takes courage to say, I stand for Jesus. And a lot of people are afraid. But here's the last thing. And that is loyalty. In all of those uh, words that we read regarding uh, what God said about Caleb in Numbers um, uh, 14.24, the third one that comes out that we would underscore is how he remained loyal. And God looked at Caleb and he said, you know, of all the people, he's been not only loyal, he's remained loyal. And it's one thing to have a loyal friend, but when things get a little bit difficult or frustrating or hard, uh, it's easy to check out. But Caleb said, I'm, I'm with you through thick and thin. And th- that means that when God is in the, in the game with us, victory becomes more than just a possibility. For Caleb, it was Joshua and himself and nobody else from his generation. They were the only two who remained loyal. They were the only two that God said could go into the promised land. Because they were the only two that said, despite the fact that the odds are overwhelmingly against us, and we're just going to be pummeled by those giants in the land, they were the only two that said, not so sure. Because as we're looking at God versus the opponents, whether they're Egyptians or whether they're people making the Tower of Babel or a variety of other episodes in their history, we're going to stay with God. Who else in the Bible said that? What did Joseph do whenever he was propositioned by Potiphar's wife? What did Daniel do uh, when he was told, um, along with the other three, not to, um, to, to sacrifice to the idol. They said, you know what? Our God, it says in Daniel 3.15, our God is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace. But even if not, we will remain loyal to him and him only. And if you look at the track record and, and, and the win rate of God versus the losses. As it stands, I don't know what God's total wins are. 
But I know on the other side of the dash where losses are indicated, it's just zero. Because God currently remains undefeated. And so greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And if you want him in your life, it starts by having a spirit of humility that says, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. And if you want to have God come close, when you're in the crowd, you say, not their will, but your will, Lord. And you represent accordingly. And if you want God to stay with you, he's more than happy to do that if you're willing to stay with him. God loves us all, but his closeness is determined by the degree that we're willing to keep him close through humility and through courage and through loyalty. And why would we do that? Because most importantly, God loves us. He loves us in a way that words can't describe. Only a symbol of a bloodstained cross begins to, just begins the process of, 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 of describing the depth of his great love for us. And so when you look at this whole experience, here's the bottom line. Even though God will always love me, his presence and power will increase in me when I operate my life in a spirit of humility, courage, and loyalty. As you respond to that, and the fact that the one thing that would drive us to be faithful in that manner is his faithful love for us. He may be asking you right now, Are you willing to draw me in? Are you willing to allow me to come close? Because I'm not going to force my way into your life. But if you invite me in, I will happily come alongside you and begin to show my favor and my blessing upon your life so that you could know my my joy and my love and the, the awesome experience of having me with you.